Hello, friend. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. I'm so glad to welcome you into the same place. It's a place of inclusivity and safety for any conversation to be heard. The safe place began as a image in my head of a wooden cabin on the lake. My own place of mental safety. And I welcome you here to listen to discussions on mental and physical health mental illness and mental and physical disability. You may hear stories that inspire. You may hear stories that make you cry, both in sadness and happiness. But always told from a place of truth. And we hold dear the principles of love, kindness and compassion. Now, with that all said, it's time to hunker down, get comfortable, so we're ready to welcome you in too. A safe place. Hello and welcome, Kate Nash OBE. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on today. Pleasure. Um, as is typical um, and tradition, really now with uh, with guests, I'm going to hand straight over to you so that you can introduce yourself. Wonderful. Well, look, Gavin. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you. I'm. Kate Nash, and I have the very great pleasure of heading up Purple Space, which is the world's only network of disability employee resource group leaders. Yeah, been around for seven years. We grew out of the work that I've been doing globally to help businesses set up employee resource groups and uh, growing like Topsy, and I'm sure we'll tuck into that. Yeah, myself, that- I live in Mumbles in, in Swansea, um, in South Wales. I also live in London and I, I constantly frequent the Middle East. So yeah, busy bunny, but lovely to stand still, sit still and to have a little chat with you. Wonderful. Indeed. And I think what would be really, really kind of insightful is to to understand how you arrived at, at, at setting up purple space and and kind of getting to that point and a bit about where all that came from and your own experiences uh, with with um with disability yeah for sure so you know the expression the personal is political Mm. it was ever thus and for me i suppose my own personal experience of disability uh, came many decades ago when i was 15 And I acquired quite dramatically the onset of juvenile chronic arthritis or Stills disease. Yeah. I think there are over 200 different types of arthritis and the two most known are rheumatoid and osteo. And and I got early onset of JCA juvenile chronic at the the age of 15. And yeah, it it was hard, you know, as a teenager, Although you don't know everything about the world. Though you like um, to think you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you do, even in those young years, you, you have, a, I suppose, an expectation about how life might unfold. And you kind of get used to two legs that work and, and two mm-hmm. arms that work and the physicality, I suppose, that comes with youth. Um, but yeah, it was very dramatic. Um, had to go into hospital for a year. I couldn't walk. I couldn't dress myself. I couldn't feed myself. Um, and I remember, I often tell the story 
I remember when I was then a wheelchair user, thanks to great surgeons and good drug therapies and physio and what have you, I, I am at the moment ambulant. Um, but at that time, I was a permanent wheelchair user. And I remember one day I was sitting at the kitchen table. I was hoping one day I would go to university. I had an expectation. Uh, but it was only a hope because this was mm. fe- many, many years before the legislation, the DDA then, Disability yeah. Discrimination Act, Special Educational Needs Act. So to go, go to a university, it would be in their gift. I had no right. So I, I, I could not imagine how that would happen. Yeah. Anyway, my story, I, my mum turned to me as I as I looked through newspapers back in the day, there was no virtual advertisements for jobs, but I was looking through newspapers, looking at jobs boards, and I was thinking, what the heck can I do when I grow up? And my mum watched me and she said, Kate, it would be fantastic if one day you could get a little job. And as a teenager, I didn't hear the word job. I mean, luckily yeah. I still have my mum. And we joke about me telling this story on platforms, global platforms. She put the stretch target in that sentence for me when nobody else was. But she also put the word little in there. And although she didn't mean to do it, she was like many, unfortunately, individuals who don't have experience of disability to, I suppose, offer up that soft bigotry of low mm. expectation that so many of us face. So that's my backstop. That drove me, Gavin. I, It just drove me. I didn't want a little job. I wanted a massive job. Well, rightly so. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, I didn't know it at the time, but I, I knew, I suppose, I, 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 I knew I wanted to do something interesting and different and massive to support the world to think differently about the talent that people with disabilities are. I wanted to be part of that change program. Didn't know, of course, at 15, what that was going to look like and feel Mm. like. But that's my backstory. That's why I do what I do. Of course, I did get to university. I did work for the lobbying sector, you know, and then obviously help set up Purple Space. But like many people doing you know change work in this space it's live it's the lived experience that drives us yeah Uh, and I I think we see that quite commonly um I mean as as you know I I live with um osteoarthritis in the main um and have done since I was well as far back as I can remember um is the reality of it and it's the funny, odd little sentences like little job or, oh, well, it's okay because you can play. For me, it was rugby and basketball, but I don't want to just play it. I want to be great at it. You know, there's no there's no reason why I shouldn't. Um, and more, most recently, uh, and it'd be interesting to see if you've had experience of this, it's the mindset of people around the use of wheelchairs and crutches and that that's a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, you know, we are touching on 
the very human tendency. I mean, when, you know, any of you and I, we talk about our experience, many of your listeners too, will be navigating tough, tough moments in our life. And that, that doesn't, that doesn't come easily. It takes mm-hmm. time for us as individuals, I think, to, to make sense of. And I'm, I'm not a fan of the language of coping with. I, I, I think that belittles our experience. But the, the, the journey of us making sense of, assimilating a human experience that, let's face it, if pushed, the majority of us would say, if I had a choice, I'd probably choose not to. That's not to say that we get jolly good. And now, you know, I'm hurtling towards my 60s. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) Your listeners, please don't pass the news on. But, you know, I can't now be bothered to think about what life would look like and feel like it's part of my being. And it brings as much joy and deliciousness about watching others and seeing how people react and and being a supportive Mm. change agent. Anyway, I ramble, but it's hard. It's hard. That doesn't take five minutes. It takes a a long time to to make sense. I've definitely did. I mean, I, I, I like to tell the story that it's, it's taken me 36 years to realize that I'm disabled. Yeah. Because it is only the last six months really where I've been fully confronted with the the things I've always had but I've just hidden because I've been able to hide um you know hiding pain is um, it's not much fun but you become very very good at being able to mask symptoms or or just to divert conversation away from those topics um, but the other thing, and uh, and I'm sure you've seen this in, in your work with Purple Space, is that you also become exceptionally good at overcoming things and adapting to, to change. Um, and for me, that's probably one of the most profound things about people with disabilities that you can kind of have is that these are immensely, immensely kind of... Um, proud group of people that just overcome things that they shouldn't need to overcome and do it with grace and dignity every single moment every every day and that's a wonderful thing yeah you're so right Kevin I I agree with you and and you you trigger a memory you know you talk about how good we become I suppose at making it easier for those in our presence Mm -hmm. Uh, to not get overly hooked or inquisitive about some of the stuff that actually we prefer not to talk about. And that notion, I can't remember what you called it, deflection or distraction. Mm. You know, my, my hands are differently shaped, just when, you know, one of the many manifestations of, of having rheumatoid arthritis. And, um, and I love buying and selling secondhand jewellery and I wear rings and I paint my nails and, you know, it all goes back. I remember meeting many, many young people with arthritis when I headed up Young Arthritis Care from mm. all over the world. And I remember it was the the Swedes and the Norwegians who said, if you've got it, flaunt it, and if you haven't got it, flaunt it anyway, <laughs> which I loved. But, you know, it's about – people will often say to me, Kate – 
do you wear copper bracelets? I mean, copper just doesn't hit the sides when it comes to, yeah. to arthritis. It, it, may, it might help some. I, I don't want to belittle if it does. It certainly doesn't help me. Um, and, I, and my deflection is, no, I don't wear copper, copper, but I love silver. And, you know, judicious use of sarcasm is, a, like, for all of us, a, yeah. a technique that we weave. But, yeah, I agree with you, Gavin. It's hard. I think I'm going to come back back to you. I think sometimes distraction can sometimes make us a little brittle. And I think that's something we have to get better at managing for ourselves. Yeah. And I, I would, I would now strongly agree with that. If you'd, if you'd asked me or if you even said that to me, even a year ago, um, I would have deflected and we'd have gone off and talked about something different because at that point, um, and I know having conversations with, with different listeners that there's many people that are at this sort of point in their lives that you're just not ready to confront your kind of whole being um, and everything you got going on because it, it, it's hard. Um, and it reminds me of a story that, that, that I know um, that you've told before around uh, being at work and, and you, your secretary, and the first time you you kind of asked for for help. Do you want to do you want to kind of just share that story with us? Yeah, I when I was heading up Young Arthritis Care um, many years ago, I had a small group of fantastic staff and we did many fantastic projects to support young people with arthritis. And one was an international youth Congress. So we, we were young, early part of our career work really mattered to us. We would, we would work long hours and into the night for conferences and projects, etc. cetera. Um, but I, but I remember I found it really hard for asking for, practical assistant like carrying a box picking up a box and I, and I had to do that and and I, I remember I, I did and there was no questions asked there was no animosity she was a fantastic individual um, but I went into the ladies loo and I cried my eyes out simply for the effort the, the, the courage that it took me then to ask for something that the majority of individuals don't really have to ask others. Now, of course, this was actually some years before the then Disability Discrimination Act, now the Equality yeah. Act. But nonetheless, and I think even the legislation doesn't, you know, that it still doesn't help the process yeah. of us making those asks. It's hard. We have to dig deep. Yeah, and and what was what was going through your mind at that point? Was it was it fear? Was it kind of just just angst or something else going on it was, it was both you know it was having to um I suppose admit to myself that there are some tasks and actions that I simply cannot do and and that's hard because you've got to confront it for yourself you have to find workarounds um you know it, it, it required a degree of courage to say to another human being, this is something I can't do. And of course, we're worried, you know, to, to give information about ourselves is to entrust in the other person part of our story. 
And we don't want to be seen as less competent at work. Uh, we don't want to be seen as swinging the lead. We never know what the other person is thinking and feeling yeah. when we are something deeply legitimate that we can't do. Um, and of course, fluctuating conditions, notoriously, you can have a really good day yeah. and you can have a really rubbish day. So again, so so that's what it, it was, fear, it was concern, it was not wanting to be less of a high-performing individual in the context of work. And it was admitting to myself, there's some things that are just not going to happen and I need mm. to get over myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I suppose the the going off into the bathroom and, and, and kind of that release of emotions that was probably as much just just pure release in the sense of everything gets so built up. And certainly I, the, my experience of it is that I still find it really difficult to ask for any form of adaptations. Um, it, it, it's just something I've always really, really struggled with. And when I do, I become really almost tired from it because it's such a such a kind of core subject to my own mental space that just having to ask for something it's emotionally tiring yeah is that it and and do you think that's that's kind of where that that that, that those you, tears came from yeah absolutely gavin i think you know it's one of the the most uh, challenging aspects of employers building an accessible working world for people with disabilities, because of course it does require great policy and practice and procedure and utterly sublime workplace adjustment processes and great mm. line managers. It requires all of that, but you have to dig a little deeper in this dynamic. And a, a lot of the ability of employers to make it easier for people to access the workplace adjustments that might exist is predicated on our ability as individuals to share an aspect of our story or our truth. And that takes a lot of effort, a lot of courage, doesn't come quickly, and it comes with practice over time. Because sometimes we might make an ask, didn't land quite well, we go away, we lick our wounds, we come back and we ask again. You know, and, and some of our number will never ask again. One bad experience. And you know, regrettably, that sometimes for some of us means that we will never ask again. So being prepared to go away and learn, what did I do? What could I do differently? You know, what what do I need to accept in terms of human truth? And what do I just not accept at all this you know what what is the unacceptable now given we do you know thankfully have legislation in place that protects our rights mm. so it's an ongoing journey and storing and it's never once and done you know never ever once and done definitely agree with that um and i think this space will always be evolving um and you've and you've only got to look at the, the kind of mental illness side, and I know that there is certainly hope that the government's going to be doing a more focused um, review of of mental health legislation, um, which I think is a very positive thing um, because I think there's a lot a lot to do, but also I think there's a 
there's a huge crossover in these things. Um, one of the things that you said before was around that some days are better than than others. Um, and I've certainly experienced that across both sides. So um, as my listeners know, I, I live with uh, depression and uh, a disorder called dis- dissociative disorder. Uh, and that's really very heavily linked with pain. So I get to such a space because I'm rubbish at looking after my own pain because I see that as a as a failure um, that I need to take medication, which I know is a ridiculous, ridiculous statement to make. But that's just how I've I've grown up, um, always kind of fighting against these little uh, adaptations, um, and that that kind of then plays onto to the the kind of mental mental health side of it and obviously at the age of 15 you you kind of suddenly having such a significant change to your life how how have you experienced that management of pain um but also management of change of perception um that you might have experienced great questions i think um much of my pain management has been born from wanting to live a purposeful life. It's the only way I can describe it. So going back to that seemingly innocuous statement from my mum, be nice if you could get a little job. Yeah. It, it, it fueled me. I mean, it angered me in the, the, the way that teenagers, I think, experience rage. You know, I didn't want a little job. I wanted a big job. But I, I realised, bearing in mind, I was a permanent wheelchair at that wheelchair user at that time, and it, it wasn't until I got to my twenties that I started the round of having hip replacements and knee mm. replacements, and and I'm now going round again with revisions. Yeah. Um, but I knew that the the, the pain was going to be a long lasting feature of my life. I knew that there was only so much that good drug therapy and surgery could do. And therefore, I needed to personally find a way of managing pain. And, and f- so for me, it was about living a purposeful life. It was about thinking, I'm on this planet, and then we all have different thoughts and feelings and views and beliefs about about life and, and, and spirituality and afterlife. For, for me, uh, there is no other life than this one. So that's my, my own personal choice. And therefore, when I met lots of other youngsters, when I went into hospital, who also had JCA, juvenile chronic, um, we were on large doses of steroids. Mm-hmm. You, know, that you didn't have the biologic drugs that we have now or the other uh, disease-modifying job, um, drugs that are available now, which are just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but at that stage, I only had steroids. And the one thing that large quantities of steroids do, unfortunately, is shorten your life. So somewhere along the line, I got it into my head that I wouldn't be around at 60. So with that degree of finite, I mean, you know, hopefully I'm wrong because next year I hit the big one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but that was my truth. And that was very helpful because that means you 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 work to a timeline that might be a bit artificially engineered. But it means that you have to think deep thoughts about, you know, where you want to be, who you want to be, who do you want to love, you know, how do you want to receive love, what is the focus of your work, how do you deliver your energy. 
So that's how I've managed pain. Now, you know, have I worked too hard? Possibly. You know, has that come at a cost? Yes, it, it has. You know, I have a great family and a fantastic partner and good friends, but I've possibly erred on the side of working too hard rather than playing too hard. But mm-hmm. that was a choice. It was conscious. And 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 I hope if, if, I mean, we don't always know if our lights are going out, but if that ever happens for me, I hope that I feel good about the way in which I've managed my pain uh, because, yeah, I don't have children as a legacy. Yeah. Um, but hopefully I've helped in one way or another to support, in this case, large, large, large numbers of employees with disability to feel jolly good about themselves. But to come back to your question, that's how I've done it. Not very well, still experience pain, still have low days, of course, you know, and in COVID we were moving the furniture around and I tripped on a on a rug and done something to my hip and it's deeply painful. But it's about how do you actively manage the fact that I'm likely to have to live with that. Yeah. But, but we're not alone. I think that gives comfort too. I would agree hugely. Um, and again, it's, it's something I've only really over probably the last couple of years started to, to realize what, I don't like the word extraordinary a community it is, but it, it kind of is. Um, and not because it's people with disabilities, but because it's people that experience lots of different things in lots of different ways. Cause obviously everybody's disability journey is, is their own. You, you, you're not really going to find two that are completely identical, but everyone understands that it's, it's tough, it's hard. And that just brings a sense of, of connection, um, to, just such a wider group. I mean, was it one in seven people um, have some form of of disability? So when you start to think about that on a kind of global level, that you know we're talking millions and millions of people that that are within that that community to have to have that type of connection is is actually quite a rare thing these days, and particularly from a mental um, health perspective is also really, really important. Um, I, I was reading a book called Lost Connections by um, uh, Johan Harry, um, and he basically explores some of the the interconnectedness that, that we need to to thrive. And one of the things that, that he talks to is, is that community aspect. Um, and I wish that I'd kind of found this community 10, 15, 20 years ago, um, because actually it would have it would have allowed me to connect with myself more. I totally get that. And you know, Gavin, you make such an important point. You know, although I, I share now <clears throat> we live in a world where, you know, youngsters who may be diagnosed with with arthritis are likely to experience drug therapy that won't necessarily lead to some of the joint damage that, that, that some of us oldsters have experienced. And yet, I think what I 
what I did have in those days, because I went into a long-term hospital, I was there for a year, uh, Taplo, the Canadian Red Cross Memorial Hospital, under the wing of a remarkable rheumatologist, uh, Barbara Ansell. And I was on a ward with teenagers of, of others with arthritis. And there was a degree of camaraderie. Um, and I, I write about this in, in my next book. But this this sense of, you know, we built ironic humour, you know, gallows humour. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, a little frog in my throat. But I think, you know, you, you touch on an incredibly important point that our experiences often of disability might isolate us for a time from our family and our immediate loved ones and our and our friends or indeed our colleagues at work. But if we can find ways of connecting with and building community and unity amongst others, it doesn't it doesn't actually it doesn't have to be the same impairment as us. In, on the contrary, I think we learn a huge amount from others who experience disability or mental ill health or indeed neurodiversity by sharing our stories, because it's not the actualities of our impairment that is actually creating challenge. Often it's the soft bigotry of, of others, and that's what's common in our experience. Yeah, definitely. And and just to go back to your your story, so you'd, you'd been experiencing all this different, um, different pain. You'd got to kind of a point where you'd finally asked for help what 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 happened next in in your in your story where did you get to next i think for me the 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 experience of asking for help and then learning how that's received and improving the ways in which i ask in the future that that process of doing reflecting and then doing it slightly differently next time is a constant it's it's an absolute constant in my life and i think in all of our lives um, and I think what I have learned is it actually takes nothing away from us. You know, having to ask for something that, you know, that, that others that we can do that we can't mm. it takes nothing about away from our self-worth, our, our brilliance, our awesomeness. It's, it's simply a fact. It's not a comment on our productivity or or our competency level, or our willingness to do things, um, or our energy. It, it has nothing to do with that. So I think that's what I have learned over time. And actually, we do have an opportunity to, I suppose, influence the outcome of others. And what I mean by that, we, we, uh, Purple Space, we do a lot of work to support others to build inner confidence and resilience. That's much of what we do through the resource group leaders. And we talk about our definition of confidence. It's not, it's not a fact. It's not a, an act. It's not a feeling. Our definition of confidence is a strong expectation of a positive outcome. And I think if you sit within that definition and you think about, so how does that apply to asking for somebody to do something around you, or indeed in a more formal way, by asking for a workplace adjustment? If you have a strong expectation of a positive outcome, that actually supports you to frame that ask in a way that others can deliver. It means that you're not, you're not arrogant with that ask. You're not 
cocky with that ask. You're simply expecting, in this case, maybe an employer would want to deliver in the same way as they would deliver against all of their diverse talent. So it helps you to kind of make the case. It might nip in the bud. The, the, The fears might that might sit in in our in, in the minds of our non-disabled line managers who may not have experience about our disabilities. So, so that's what I've learned. I think is it takes nothing away from us uh, that we have a role to to play. We have to lean in to think about how we can make it easier for others to deliver to us, and that's partly about being uh, very confident. That the experience of disability, mental ill health, or neurodiversity does nothing to diminish our worth at all, even if others don't know that. Yeah. And one of the obviously outstanding things um, with your your past is uh, it was two thousand seven, wasn't it, that you got your your OBE. Um, just tell us a little bit about how that came about and the experience of of uh, of getting it. It's a huge accomplishment. That's kind of you, Gavin. So yes, two thousand and seven. Prior to that, I'd been working as chief executive to then Radar, now called Disability Rights UK, headed up by the wonderful Cameron Malik. Um, and I, I was chief executive of Radar for around six years, six, seven years. And it was through the period where uh, the, the then Conservative government uh, in 95 had, had, had secured the Disability Discrimination Act. And yet there were still a number of impairments that we wanted on the face of, of the act, uh, particular HIV, uh, people who experience cancer. Um, and and MS. Um, So I was working with a lobbying team. So I was a lobbyist, trained lobbyist. I eyeballed ministers for a living, (laughs) not for the faint hearted. And I'm jolly (laughs) pleased I don't do that anymore. Um, And they say you can take the girl out of Westminster and Whitehall. You can't take the Westminster and Whitehall out of the girl. So I still enjoy the, the, the process, the machine that we have, although like every citizen, I'm sure I howl to the moon about some of the things that, that comes out of that sausage machine. Um, but so, so to your point, I was working long, hard hours to get some of the uh, uh, improvements to the legislation. I uh, worked with an extraordinary team. And um, it was when I, I, I secured that OPE when I was uh, needing to move on from radio. I'd done my bit. I was very tired. Um, I had decided to go on a world cruise, but I knew then, I knew then that I, my next journey, my next strategic contribution was going to be in building the community of disability ERG leaders. So the best practice guide was sitting in my head and it was needing to be written and I needed to move on. So, so yes, I moved on from radar and, and I, and I was awarded an OBE for that, for that work. Yeah. Does that, does that kind of instill you with a sense of, of accomplishments or, or a drive to do more? Well, that's a tricky one to answer because 
Uh, not everybody is a fan of the honours system. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, ha- I have no fixed views on that. You know, another day we could do a podcast on views of the monarchy. And, and that, that doesn't have a place in our, in our conversation today. But to, to answer your point, yes, that there was a level at which I was, I was, um, it, it stopped me in my tracks because, I, you know, I, as I say, I have worked hard. It's been a characteristic of my, of my being, and and sometimes I've I've overdone it a little bit. But what that means is I have no time to waste. You know, I have to keep going. I work at a pace. You know, some people call me nationator. Like, <laughs> so, so to get, yeah, I suppose it was a. It was it was it was an an acknowledgement uh, from c- civil servants who ultimately put the list um, together that I was doing something that was helpful and useful. So yeah, I paused fleetingly, and I yeah I, w- I was I was moved by it, ir- irrespective of as I say that that feeling about whether honours have a place and whether the system is 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 quite as equitable as it as it could be. Yeah, and and I think it's it's one of those things that it's almost better if you strip away any thoughts that you might have about the system and just acknowledge the fact that it's to demonstrate accomplishment. Now we won't get into to kind of how that all arrives and that as could you say it's it's probably a couple a couple of podcasts worth that one. <laughs> Um, but it, it it is an acknowledgement of really outstanding work that you've done through your career. And I, I think that is something that is rightly um, uh, a proud um, uh, a proud accomplishment, uh, in my view. Thank you, Gavin. And I hear you. And, and you know, I, I don't want to belittle it. I, I I think for all of us, sometimes we do have to stop. And feel jolly good about some of the work that we do. Yeah, definitely. Like you do. Yeah. And then, what's so a 2015, wouldn't it be, that um, Purple Space was was founded? So between 2007, so you, you just left what was um, Radar. What, what, what filled that gap between, apart from the cruise, of course? <laughs> Yeah, that was a beautiful interlude. Yeah, spending off months on a cruise liner. Yeah, taking my little hotel room around the world and seeing the most remarkable places, which for me was a an adjustment to be able to do some of the physical travelling. Yeah, that I'm just not able to do. So, what did I do? As I say, I knew that my the next part of my journey was going to be about helping businesses to set up disability employee resource groups. I'd been looking and researching and reading about and talking to employers that had very purposeful, high-performing, fabulous communities uh, when it came to gender, when it came to uh, their minority and ethnic communities, um, and and also to a large extent their LGBTQ plus um, communities. And my prediction was if we're really going to start to see a sea change in how uh, employees with disability secure their workplace adjustments and feel good about themselves and employers uh, recruit us in the way that is proportionate to the population, then it was going to take us to lean in 
and to think about our experiences, build our inner confidence and actually help our employers to do differently and better at the top of the shop. Uh, change comes in many forms. It's not just policy and practice and procedure. So having helped secure the legislation and helped many, many employers manifest that legislation, my gut, my instinct was that would count for nothing unless we, as people with disabilities, are prepared to be open about our experiences when we can, um, to share our stories of disability and discomfort, to learn from each other, to be uh, to be challenging to ourselves, etc. So to, to your question, to your point, so I came off the World Cruise, set up my own consultancy, Kate Nash Associates then, I worked with many hundreds of employers to help them set up disability networks. And it was great. It was very, very uh, energizing period. I would help companies who were worried, you know, we don't have enough disabled people. Yes, you do. <laughs> you know, even though they may monitor, then they often say we've only got 1% or 2%. I'd say ignore them ignore what you think is the accurate data yeah. guarantee you that that's not correct yeah. any employer of any size of any geography of any footprint will have around 10 to 12 percent which is a big community mm-hmm. well, that's what i did bit by bit by bit and then wrote to the book secrets and big news which then became the trigger point the messages within the book was the thing that set the demand for purple space and Perhaps a slightly odd question, but why purple? Well, jolly good question. <laughs> so some, when we when I was writing Secrets and Big News, so this is a book that was uh, published, self-published, but uh, sponsored by some fantastic companies like GSK, Post Office, Metropolitan Police. Uh, and uh, when we talked and surveyed the views of two and a half thousand disabled people. The premise of the book, Secrets and Big News, is that employers need to move on from using the language of declaration and disclosure. It's very unhelpful semantics. And if you use that semantics, you're suggesting that the third party might have a secret. If you use the word disclose, you're you're suggesting that the other person has a human experience. This is a wee bit of a secret. You know, if you use the language of declaration, you're suggesting that that person has a big piece of news. And these types of words and languages and semantics are not helpful in our lives. Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of purple, so we were talking to two and a half thousand people through the messaging in the book. And it was around the time that the UK government had started to talk about the purple pound as a way of describing the, I suppose, the the um, the the, the the the, uh, the custom base, I suppose, the market uh, when it comes to uh, the purchasing power of people with disabilities. So we've heard about the grey pound, which is an ironic term, I suppose, to refer to people of a certain age. Yeah. We've heard of the pink pound, again, using the colour pink, ironically, to help describe uh, the purchasing power of our LGBT plus uh, colleagues and so too was born this notion of the purple pound so we did some research and there were pockets of that use uh, and association with that color around the world but it really has been organic um, and we we were one of the first organizations that chose to come out very quickly 
and, and very deliberately and very consciously and to attach and to symbolise and to make emblematic the colour purple with the experience of disability. And that's partly because many of us find it hard to use the language of disability yeah. when we talk about ourselves. And just like the rainbow flag has been a very strong and purposeful emblem to bring together the community there, so too we wanted to do that, not just in the UK, very ambitious. We wanted to do that across the world. And then by doing that, and infamously when I sent the tweet about the purple light up into the world just a year or two later, we've now built a global movement to help bind and support people with disability together. So why purple? Don't know. It could have been yellow. Who knew? It could have been green. And of course, colour is not the point or the type of colour. It is using colour as a metaphor to make it easy for us to join a community when we're struggling sometimes to even describe ourselves. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I ask about the purple um, slightly knowingly. Um, but I think, and again, for for me, it's only only recently that I've started to use any of these things. Um, but it is something that's very easy to to use. So even simple things like, yeah, um, on social media, uh, you can use purple hearts, little tiny things that seem so small and, and, and kind of innocuous, but actually have such deep meaning behind them, I think is, is a real positive um, that you can take out of that, that situation. So you've, you've now got Purple Space set up um, and, and the infamous tweet, which would have been, what, 2017, wouldn't it? Um, and you've got this, this light-up campaign you're, we're now what seven years, seven years in, and you're a global um, uh, player uh, in in the in the particularly in the ERG space. You've got all sorts of different offerings. How have you kind of gone from what feels like that tweet? I know it wasn't. I know there's a lot behind it. To, to building such a, an important organisation for people with disabilities? It's about being purposeful. You know, the, 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 the topic of disability touches so many people's lives. And I, um, as I've shared, I've been around the block a little bit. I've seen many organisations, particularly disability organisations, actually lose sight of their primary purpose. And uh, we at Purple Space, I have a fantastic team. We're a small team with a massive global footprint, as you say. There's seven of us. So I, I choose very carefully in terms of how I appoint and attract talent and coach and mentor not just the the staff and the second team but equally the incredible ambassadors that that support we're a very broad team um and um we we stick to purpose so although our higher purpose is to support employees with disability to build inner confidence and resilience through 
community and deep discussion about what we bring to the world and and how we how we lean into our careers we do that through the vehicle of disability employee resource groups it's a crowded and a messy market out there you know there are some fantastic employer trade associations many of whom we work with and you know we 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 really rate their work whether that's business disability forum whether that's valuable 500 uh, whether it's um, Cadaroon in the Middle East, Australian Network. Th- these are really brilliant organisations that are making it employers to get excited. We do something altogether different. So we work in that space to support the leaders of disability employee resource groups who have a regular job on the side of their desk. Um, they have to deliver against that regular job you know that's the bit that pays the mortgage <laughs> and they have to deliver they they want to be high performing individuals in their own right in the businesses that they work but meanwhile they've got it on them and they want to use their experiences to support their companies to go further and faster so they have to find courageous ways of speaking truth to power in a way that doesn't damage yeah and ruin relationships they have to push they have to be energetic they have to yeah sometimes describe the unpalatable experiences so that's what we do to come to your question how have we done it we've been very clear about our purpose and everything that we do is measured against uh, our higher purpose how does this support people to build inner confidence through the vehicle of disability employee resource groups and then leveraged through the purple light up through the movement where we celebrate the economic contribution of employees with disability through the United Nations International Day on the 3rd of December. So that's how we've done it purposefully. Yeah. That's great. Really, really great. Um, and you've got another book coming out as well, your second. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. So, yeah, it's been a labour of love. <laughs> uh, it's called Positively Purple. It's coming out on the 3rd of October, published by Kogan Page. Um, and the wonderful Chris Cudmore, the publishing editor there, who's been remarkable. Um, so it's I wrote it during COVID. So it is autobiographical. Um, it is largely about the story of my life, but it's chock full of lessons learnt. So a bit like secrets and big news. I mean, it's not nothing like the same, but the technique of mirroring the lessons for employers as well as the lessons for employees with disability. So that is woven throughout the book. Um, I wrote, as I say, I wrote it through COVID and it has been a labour of love. And I've had to dig deep to think deeply about what those lessons are. So, yeah, fingers crossed others will enjoy it uh, but that's that's where I'm heading I'm not yet ready for swan song and <laughs> retirement <laughs> but I am as coming back to your opening questions I'm have been wholly conscious some would say haunted by this notion of that our life is finite and therefore I need to find the time to write some other thought pieces about how we navigate our inner worlds mm. so, yeah yeah I think it's it's an important side of the story to be able to tell 
Um, I mean, I I like to kind of go back and kind of think back to the things that might have might have helped when I was when I was growing up. Um, so yeah, I was I was born with lower limb uh, deformities, which then largely because of surgery, which without the surgery I wouldn't I wouldn't have walked, um, let alone done anything else. Um, but all these things have a have an impact. And actually having lessons that other people have learned and have gone through and experienced and can can reflect on, it helps parents as much as anything else because it's really difficult for a parent of a child with with disability if they haven't experienced it themselves to understand and know what to do and 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 how to act and you know where to push and where to to pull and all these different types of things so any resources that can help parents but also any resource that can help particularly young um uh, kind of disabled people just get there quicker so not not wait until they're 36 to start to understand that actually it's okay. So what, you know, um, and get there a lot quicker because I think you just get to experience more of life that way. hundred percent, Kevin, hundred, hundred percent. I love it. And, you know, youngsters now grow up in the world of social media in the way that I didn't. And the work that you're doing, I think is extraordinary. So making it easier for people to think deeply about our experiences in order to share, in order that we can pay it forward, in order that others can reach some conclusions a little bit earlier in their life. So well done. Yeah. And thank, thank you, you for today. So as you know, there's there's just two last questions um, as we as we wrap up. So first is um, to your five-year-old self. What advice would you now give? Oh, my five-year-old self. I would say laugh loudly and often. You know, I didn't know at 15 what life was going to look like or feel like. And, you know, the, the experience in this case of arthritis did, it derailed me for a wee while before I could regroup and go again. And for all of the challenge, for all of the pain, for all of the discomfort, for all of the surgery, for all of the, uh, the, the frustration about certain aspects of my life, I think humour is such a fantastic vehicle. Yeah. To, and therefore nurturing that part. That doesn't mean to say that we always have to be happy. We, we're not. You've shared and, you know, I too have experienced Bouts of uh, mental health that are just awful, just awful. But what would I say to my? I'd say laugh loudly and often if you can. Um, I would say all tough times pass largely. Um, There are plenty of them, (laughs) and 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 sometimes those tough moments have a beat rate for the rest of your life. Mm. Um, And then the the last piece of advice would be find your purpose. Find your purpose. What is it? Is it tinkering with with train engines? Is it chemical engineering? Is it art? Is it, you know, what is it? What is your thing? 
What is your red thread? What is your purpose? Because whatever life throws at you, you know, it might be it may be your family, it may be none of the above, it may be, you know, breeding nasturtiums or roses. You know, what is your thing? Nurture your thing. Love that. Love that. And then finally, um, so we're just going to pretend for a moment that I am the world's best chef. I mean, we don't have to pretend that hard, obviously. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But let's just pretend. So first of all, it's a dinner party. Um, What's the meal that you'd get me to cook? Gavin, if you would serve anything with fish, I would love you forever. Well, look, I love you forever anyway. Fish, yeah. Salmon, I love. I love monkfish. I love lobster. I love cod. I love pollock. So if you serve a fish dish, that would be superb. Fish dish is certainly yours um, and the best fish dish that there could possibly be. I'm excited already. And then at the table, so there's four other four other chairs there. Living, dead, obviously not actually dead, but reincarnated. Whoever you want, who who would you like to be there as your guest to, to converse wow. with? Wow, wow, wow. First would be John Amici. John Amici. So he, if any of you know, he's a he is a a, a, a workplace psychologist. Uh, he's often known for being one of the first UK black gay basketball players who played over in the States. He came out as an openly gay man. Uh, and now he works as the most extraordinary workplace uh, psychologist, uh, particularly when it comes to diversity and inclusion and supporting businesses to think very deeply. Uh, he's an extraordinary man. His, his book, The Promises of Giants, is wonderful. He's a dear friend. I don't see him enough because of COVID. So he yeah. would have to be there. Uh, Liz Carr, Liz Carr, the actress in Silent Witness. I think what she has done to use her influence and her platform as an actress and as a comedian to break down barriers when it comes to disability is quite extraordinary. Uh, Many, many moons ago, I had the great privilege when I was running personal development courses at Young Arthritis Care to have her come on one of our courses. And I remember watching her. She's younger than me, obviously. But I remember watching her and noticing how her appetite around the politics of disability was growing. But she's she's fun. She's naughty. She's irreverent. She doesn't take prisoners. But she's also a great thinker. So she'd have to be around the table. She keeps me laughing. Um, I'd probably have Caroline Goodin, the late Caroline Goodin, sadly no longer with us. Uh, But she was uh, someone very important in the creation of the Disability Discrimination Act. Um, So she pretty much wrote the Disability Discrimination Act, worked with Lord Ashley and a number of lobbyists, a wonderful woman who we miss dearly. and arguably, we wouldn't have the legislation had it not been for Caroline. And then lastly, Julia Middleton. Julia Middleton, uh, the ex-founder of Common Purpose that brings different sectors together. She gave me a, a bursary many, many, many years ago to go on a leadership program at, at Common Purpose, funded then by Railtrack. Um, but she was 
I like to think she was talent spotting and she broke the rules in order to help people with disabilities climb up the greasy pole. So again, she's naughty and irreverent. She's purposeful. So those would be my four guests over fish. I'm looking forward to it. When am I coming around? Is it next Friday? (laughs) We'll we'll book it in. We'll get it sorted. (laughs) Okay. That, that was a, a wonderful conversation it sounds like a, an amazing dinner table to um to be at as well um thank you so much for coming on um i always wish my uh guests away with love compassion and kindness and i'll do the same to you so thank you very much um for for today um and i know um my listeners will will be so thankful for for you as well so thank you very much Thank you, Gavin, for what you're doing. It's wonderful. Um, Let us know where we can help. Amazing. Well, thank you, friends. That's all we've got time for today. I'm sure you have enjoyed uh, today's episode. And if you did, please make sure you rate uh, the episode and the show's five stars on whatever platform you might be listening on and of course please share your own stories and your own um kind of thoughts and feelings of the episodes in the reviews you can also find me um, on i am gavin clark and that's clark with an e over on instagram and you can search for the safe place uh, on there too it's a safe place podcast but for now i'll send you away with love kindness and compassion Speak soon.